Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be today, and I appreciate the ministry uh, in music of those who are up here and y'all's worship in music down there. There's not a difference uh, between it, except that they didn't turn on my mic, uh, my mic for that part. Uh, but all of us, right, the, the point of it is, is worship in the Lord, and so thankful for uh, those who are uh, leading us in that from here. So thankful for y'all's participation there. Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be today, and it's a bit of a different experience uh, for me uh, to be up here uh, and doing something in front of you that doesn't involve just the lowest budget musical production uh, between uh, King George and the rhythm ukulele. Uh, we're not going to get uh, a three-peat today, but uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here at West Coast and uh, just to participate uh, in so much uh, of what God is doing here, of what God is doing uh, throughout the world, uh, through our pastor, through our faculty, through our students, and uh, it's just a blessing to be here for sure. Uh, we're going to be in the first 11 verses here in Romans today. We're going to be preaching from the idea of not only, but also. Hey, not only, but also. Not only do we see some specific blessings some original blessings, some past blessings highlighted in the Christian life, but also we see the ongoing goodness, the ongoing generosity of God towards us as Christians highlighted here in these 11 verses. We'll read just verse 1 for right now, but we're going to spend our time uh, here today. Verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully you're having a, a great day so far today. Hopefully uh, your classes have been good. It's been a relatively high energy Friday. But no matter how good your day has been so far, it's probably not as good as July 1st is every year for Bobby Bonilla. Now Bobby Bonilla, you probably only know if you're an extreme nerd sports fan hence why I know about him. But Bobby Bonilla played in Major League Baseball from 1986 to 2001. He made six all-star teams. He won a World Series. He was never a, a mega star, but he certainly had a successful career. But as he was getting towards the end of his career with the New York Mets, they came to him and they said, hey, we're thankful for what you contributed to our franchise. We're thankful for what you've done for us over the years. But uh, you're not that good anymore, and uh, we'd really love to renegotiate your contract, try to, to get some of this number down a little bit. Uh, the Mets owner at that time uh, was deeply invested with a friend of his, uh, Bernie Madoff, and Madoff said, oh man, I've got this investment, it's going to pay out, it's going to be incredible. Turned out to be one of the largest pyramid schemes in American history, so it didn't play out that great for him. But they said, you know what, we're a little bit cash-strapped right now, but man, I'm going to have my friends tell their friends about this business opportunity, and their friends are going to tell their friends. This is going to work out great. We're going to have so much money here. So they had about $6 million left on his contract. And they said, you know what? What if we gave you $1.2 million a year? Hey, we can do the math. Eh, it'd be about five years to break even. But they said, you know what? If you'll lower your salary right now from the $6 million or so you've got left, we'll give you $1.2 million a year for the next 25 years. And so every July 1st, Bobby Bonilla receives a check for $1.2 million 
from the New York Mets. Uh, he's getting this through 2035. He hasn't played Major League Baseball in over 20 years. I haven't played Major League Baseball in over 20 years, and yet I'm not getting $1.2 million from the New York Mets. But not only this, the Baltimore Orioles also had him signed towards the end of his career, also realized, hey, we're paying this guy too much money. And so he's getting half a million dollars from the Baltimore Orioles on July 1st every year through 2028. So hey, July 1st, pretty great day in the Bonilla household. I don't know if one of his kids has a birthday shortly after July 1st. That's the blessed kid, right? The kid that's a birthday around Christmas, eh, they're probably just getting one big gift. You know, the kid that has their birthday July 3rd or whatever, great gifts, right? That kid is just living the life. Hey, Bobby Bonilla is living the life. He's not actively playing baseball anymore. I don't know what he's doing. But man, every July 1st, $1.7 million getting deposited to his accounts. Man, he's living the life. Paul here has begun the book of Romans by focusing on man's guilt, especially in the first couple of chapters. Right? Man's, guilt, uh, man's guilt is furthered by the fact that because of creation outside of us and conscience inside of us, we know that there is a God, but we reject this truth, and in chapter 3, man is guilty. Man deserves the righteous judgment of God that he receives. In chapter, the end of chapter 3 and leading into chapter 4, Paul starts to focus on justification, redemption, salvation, these incredible truths of God's grace. And starting here in chapter 5, Paul starts to shift the focus towards what Christians receive right now. Hey, therefore, being justified by faith, hey, this is something which has happened to us in the past. We have... Right now, in this moment, peace with God. Hey, like these continuing deposits in uh, Bobby Bonilla's bank account, hey, based on what happened in the past, and unlike Bobby, it's not something that we earned, it's not something that we deserved, it's something that was given to us in the past, but based on what we've received in the past, we have continuing deposits, we have ongoing blessings every day that we're going to see here in this passage that God has given to us. Hey, therefore, being justified by faith, this is our standing. We have, these are our ongoing benefits package, uh, packages that we receive. So what are these ongoing riches? What are these blessings that we receive? What do we see given to us here as Christians? Well, first of all, we see that we have security to stand in. We have security to stand in. Uh, verse 1, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul starts to catalog the blessings that we've received and the security that this gives us to stand in. He says, hey, we have legal righteousness that towards God, our position, our standing, the way he sees our bank account is no longer full of sin, marred by our guilt, separated from God, but rather we have peace with God. We have legal righteousness towards God, from God, in our relationship with him. Uh, this has been the point of the last four chapters. None of us can get there on our own. All of us can receive this through Jesus Christ. And we have legal righteousness. We've been declared righteous through the work of Jesus Christ for us. 
And we say that categorically, right? Hey, we have as Christians. Have you? Is this something that you've received at some point in your past? I'd guess so, right? If, if I pull the student's name, right? If I had to, to bet on if they'd signed up for fine arts or not, eh, 80% probably, but who knows, right? If I had to bet on if they're uh, saved, I would guess so. But man, if, if 99% of us are saved, then there's a 20 to 1 chance if there's about 300 of us here that someone here has never received Christ as Savior. You might know the words, you might know the stories, you might know the answers to the quizzes, and uh, you might have nailed personal evangelism and survey of Bible doctrines and whatever other classes about salvation and about the gospel, but have you received the gospel? Are you legally right with God? Do you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? It's one of the blessings you can have. It's one of the gifts you can receive. But we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also, hey, not only do we have legal righteousness and peace in our relationship with God, but we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. We have unlimited access to God's grace. And there's no restriction to this. Uh, there's no distance that there has to be between us and God. Uh, there's no blackout dates of when this can or can't be used, right? Depending on what kind of parks pass you get for some of the Disney parks or things around here. Uh, maybe there's some, some blackout dates, some dates that uh, you can't go because they're a bit more of a rush. There's no blackout dates with God. There's no VIP level with God. There's no membership tier that, you know what, he'll listen to some of your prayers, but uh, honestly, you don't measure up like some of these others. Uh, he doesn't uh, care quite as much about listening to you, about working on your behalf as, as he does for some of these others. And there's no restrictions, there's no limits to this. Uh, I don't know if you've got uh, maybe a couponer uh, in your family. Uh, my mom was, uh, did, always did a great job at uh, making sure that she was stretching the money the Lord was providing for us as, as far as it could go. But sometimes with those coupons, right, it says, hey, you know, maybe you know, limit one per customer, right? Buy one, get one free. You can't just go grab all of the, you know, whatever, all of the chicken off the shelves and just keep checking out with that coupon forever. Hey, maybe there's a, a limit. Hey, one per customer, one per customer per day or something like that. There's no restrictions on God's grace. Uh, there's no nozzle that God is just opening up just that little bit, and, uh, but hoping that we don't uh, take too much advantage of coming to him in prayer, going to him with access. We have unlimited access to God's goodness, to God's person in our life. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, We have not a high priest which can't be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but is in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. God is not distant from your needs. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Hey, show up, right? Go to God in prayer. Go to God about your needs. Go to God about what you're experiencing in order that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ephesians 2.18 says, for through him we both, hey, Jews and Gentiles, all believers, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Hebrews 10 gives us again this command, let us draw near. 
Hey, go to God. God says there's no restrictions. There's no uh, velvet cord that you can't quite get past. So come to me. And Paul calls this this grace wherein we stand. When I was originally looking at this passage, I figured it'd probably end up with something about our security to rest in or something like that. And we should rest in it. And there's this great sense of, of confidence, of rest that this gives us. But Paul here describes it as standing. He says, hey, dig your feet down into this. Hey, hey, get a strong standing in this. Uh, right, maybe you're uh, playing uh, collegiate basketball or something. Hey, uh, when you're boxing out that person from the opposing team, hey, dig your feet down, get a firm stance, and don't be moved off of this. We have legal righteousness, we have unlimited access, and we have joyful confidence. Hey, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this doesn't seem to be talking about God's glory in the sense that, wow, God is amazing, all of his attributes are perfect, though they are, and that's often described in the Bible as the glory of God, because we're not hoping that God is going to end up being glorious. He is glorious. He is awesome. He is perfect already. So this seems like he's focusing on our glorification in the presence of the glory of God. Hey, First John talks about this. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This seems to be what Paul is talking about here, that we have this confidence, we have this settled and firm hope that one day Jesus is going to show back up, we're going to be with him, we're going to be like him, for all eternity. And Paul carries this sort of idea. He talks about our uh, glorification with Christ. Even in Romans 8, as he's talking about the things that we have received from God, he says uh, about those, who us, uh, those of us who are Christians, uh, them he also glorified. Hey, this is locked in. This is going to happen. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, if we've received him by faith, we have legal righteousness in our relationship with God, uh, for all of time, we have confident access in our relationship with God today, and we have a joyful future confidence that we're going to be with God, we're going to be like God because of what God has provided for us. Man, some encouraging truths. It's, it's hard to top these two verses in terms of the incredible, uplifting scope of what's being described here. But then look at verse 3. In the first two verses, we saw that we have security to stand in. We've got incredible blessings upon blessings. Hey, not only do we have this, but also that. But verse 3, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. And hey, the word glory here is the exact same word for rejoice in verse 2. Translated a little bit differently. It means the same sort of thing. But Paul is bringing out this parallel. He says, you know what's awesome? You know what's worth celebrating? Well, in verse 2, going to heaven. Hey, that makes sense. Heaven's going to be amazing. Worth getting excited. Worth getting pumped up about that. And so it's almost as if he's saying, hey, you know what's going to be awesome? Going to heaven is awesome, right? And there's all these, you know, Romans here in a pep rally. They're like, yeah, going to heaven. And then he's like, you know what else is going to be awesome? Tribulations are awesome. The Romans are like, Wait, what? <laughs> right? I don't, uh, I'm not so sure about that, Paul. Right? I, I think we, uh, let's just go back to the first couple of verses. Uh, tribulation has the idea of, of crushing pressure. 
It's the difficulties of life. And sometimes we come across difficulties in life because we do dumb things and those have consequences. We've all been there at some point. Hopefully not too much. Hopefully not too frequently. Hopefully not too recently. But we've all been there at some point. Hey, sometimes tribulation, sometimes bad things just happen to us. And we're not really positive why, but they just sort of seem to keep happening. Uh, I read the story, and you can look this up, of uh, the 29-year-old Mitsubishi engineer, Tsutomo Yamaguchi. And he was working in Japan in 1945. And any of y'all that have taken a history class at some point and stayed awake through that history class, you know what's going on in Japan in 1945. So he's there in the middle of World War II, and uh, he's going to work at the Mitsubishi factory that he works at. And uh, he uh, was uh, at a a meeting. He had gotten transferred to another branch. And on August 6, 1945, he was there at work in Hiroshima. And that's not really the place that you wanted to be on August 6, 1945. He's there at work when the first of the two atomic bombs falls. Somehow he survives. Right through, uh, the, through whatever circumstances, through whatever means, he doesn't die in this blast. His eardrums are ruptured, and uh, he, he's not in great physical condition. He's taken to the hospital, but he manages to survive. And just because of the scope of uh, how many survivors they were, any of them who were well enough at all to uh, get home, they, they tried to send home as soon as possible. And so he went back to his hometown uh, after being discharged from the hospital. And on the ninth, he goes uh, into work, and he's telling his boss, hey, this is, this is crazy. This one bomb just took out this entire section of the city. And the, bo- uh, the boss, there at work in his hometown of Nagasaki, says there's no way that could possibly happen And is, as this uh, meeting is going on on August 9th, 1945, that the second atomic bomb falls in his hometown of Nagasaki. And he survives that one too, and he lives to be 90 years old, right? Hey, I don't know what he was feeling in that moment, but he was probably feeling, hey, why does this always keep happening to me? And sometimes we've been there. As far as we know, we're not doing anything dumb that's leading to consequences that are the natural outflow of dumb actions. As far as we know, there, there might not even be a specific lesson that we're, we're seeing that we need to be learning sometimes. It just feels like bad things keep happening to us. It feels like bad things keep stacking up in our lives. Sometimes difficulties come about uh, as followers of Jesus Christ because the world rejects him. Hey, to be fair, in uh, America, we're blessed with incredible freedoms. We're blessed with incredible privileges. Hey, we might face a level of difficulty, but sometimes we're far more quick. It's far easier for us to start crying persecution than our difficulties deserve relative to those that so many Christians face around the world. But we do know that Scripture says, hey, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We know that can happen. And some difficulties come as as lessons from the Lord, as teaching opportunities for us. But whatever the cause, whatever the source of those difficulties, they're usually not that fun. We're usually not that excited about them. Uh, We usually orient our prayers somewhat more so towards asking God to make them shorter or asking God to uh, make them easier, asking God to help us uh, get out of them or or, or to distance ourselves from them. We, We try to avoid them or flee from them or remove ourselves. But Paul here in verse 2 
says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And in verse 3, he says that we rejoice in tribulations. Why? Oh, why should we be so pumped about this? Well, he gives us some reasons. He says here in verse 3, knowing we have this knowledge and we have this confidence that no matter how good your semester has been so far or how bad it's been, no matter what difficulties you face financially, relationally, uh, with your health, with family members' health, with friends' health, uh, with whatever circumstances, whatever difficulties you've been facing so far, we know that tribulation worketh patience. So here's the first benefit that Paul gives of difficulties, that Paul gives of tribulation, of, of the crushing pressure we face in life. Tribulation works, it develops patience for us to endure more tribulation. Well, thanks a lot, guys. Honestly, I was hoping that tribulation would work deliverance from tribulation. That would be number one on my list, right? Not endurance for more tribulation. Uh, the idea here of patience isn't just uh, looking at the clock, waiting for it to be over, but, but enduring it, staying under it. And Paul says, hey, the main thing, the first thing, the first step in God's plan for you, God's purpose for you through the difficulties that you're going through right now of whatever kind and whatever scope, hey, sure, someone out there has it tougher than me, but, but these are real difficulties I'm facing right now in my life, Lord. I know that I've got so much to be thankful for, and I am thankful for it, Lord, but, but it's difficult right now for me in my life today. What are you doing in this, Lord? The Lord says, I'm building you an endurance to keep going through more of this. Well, thanks. But notice what else he says in verse 4, and patience, experience. Now, experience here uh, is the idea of provenness. It's tested and proven character. It's not just that we went through the experiences. You've probably got a friend that's gone through an experience where they did something dumb, they got the demerits for it, and then they went back and did the same dumb thing the next week, and you're like, what are you doing, my man? <laughs> like, what, what's, what's going on with that? Hey, it's not just that, oh, this happened to me before. But it's kind of maybe like the picture of experience on a, on a sports team. Hey, if you've got a team that's just full of freshmen, you're probably more likely to have a development year. Oh, man, you can see the talent. You can see the potential. You can see what's going to happen. But you kind of need a couple of seniors on the team as well. Uh, you need a couple of guys with uh, a bit of experience as well. Uh, a couple of guys who have been there and they know what the coach is going to call and uh, they, they say, hey, this is going to be how it works out and, and we can uh, make this happen. We know what to do. We've seen this sort of situation before. Uh, one of the best young quarterbacks in the NFL right now is Trevor Lawrence and uh, made the playoffs this year, won a playoff game uh, this year, came back from a crazy margin against the L.A. Chargers. Don't mention this uh, game to Brother Zach Glenning. Uh, I think he's probably wiped it from his memory by now. Uh, but if you're listening to this Chapel podcast, hi, Zach. Uh, but Trevor Lawrence, right, a great year this past year in the NFL. But it was his second year, and guess what happened in his first year in the NFL? They had the worst record in the league, right? It didn't really work out as great as he was, and part of that was some pretty terrible coaching. But you know what? It's just, it's hard to be extremely su successful without that much experience. 
I was talking with Dr. Burt the other day, and I'm excited to be helping out in a couple of weeks uh, with the basketball game activity, but I told him, if I'm gonna be helping out with this activity, I need you to refer to it as the Magic game instead of the Clippers game. I'm from Orlando, and I'm the one token Magic fan that everyone knows. That's mostly brought me sadness in life, frankly. But if I'm going to help with this, this needs to be referred to in chapel as the magic game and not the Clippers game. We've, we've got to be the A side of this experience here. You know, we've got some great young players. We've hopefully got a bright future. Hopefully I'm not just leading myself down a, a road of heightened expectations that will only lead me to increased pain because I really wouldn't enjoy that, frankly. But you know what? We're still the fifth worst record in the league right now because our guys just got to have a bit more experience. This is what Paul is talking about here. Experience isn't just surviving a little bit longer. Experience is that it takes time for us to grow. Experience is that it takes time for us to be tested, for us to be proven that God uses the experience. God works by process in developing us where we need to get to. And yet sometimes when that process is difficult, I say, God, I'd really love to skip to the end. That's not how it works. Uh, right? You're the, just like you wouldn't uh, try to uh, run a marathon with no training whatsoever or uh, try to see if you can uh, just bench press some massive amount without ever working your way up to it. God has developed life in many ways to work by process, to work over time. And that's what he does in our lives spiritually as well. Hey, tribulation works patience, endurance to stay under the tribulation. Why should we stay under it? But because God is testing and proving and developing us in the middle of our difficulties. And experience works hope. Uh, hope is this confident expectation of the outcome. Uh, that we're not uncertain, that we're not confused, that we're not up in the air if God is going to come through for us but we have confidence in God's work in our lives such that just like we have confidence that we'll be with the Lord in glory, we have confidence in his work in our lives right now. But when we think about hope, we often think about uh, some kind of unrealistic or, or some kind of uh, pie in the sky, some kind of best case scenario, but I'm not getting my heart particularly set on it kind of situation. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I hope the Magic win the title this year. It's not happening, right? But verse 5 tells us something incredible. It's that hope maketh not ashamed. Now, we would feel like the greater our hope, the greater our investment uh, emotionally and with our, with our being into whatever outcome, the greater a chance for a letdown we might have, Right? Man, if I get myself really hyped up that this is going to be our year, well, when we inevitably go, you know, 40 and 42 or whatever next year, that's not that great. Uh, there, there's a, a letdown for it. Uh, there's a disappointment that takes place. Oh, man, you know, I, I think our, our collegian's going to, you know, win this event at the uh, collegian clash, and, and then everyone else, you know, gets a stomach bug the day of, and nobody shows up, and you lose, or, or whatever, right? The more excited you are about something, the more fired up you are about something, the greater it seems like our opportunity for disappointment would be. 
the, the greater it seems like the potential letdown would be in our life. And yet hope maketh not ashamed. Hope is not going to let us down. Hope is not going to fail us when our hope is placed in God. There is no downside to you placing your hope in God. Uh, you might not see it right now. It might not come together right now. It might not feel like it's working out at this moment in this specific situation. But there is no downside to getting your hopes up, to setting your hopes high in God. Now, this doesn't mean that we should say, hey, God's going to give me a new car by tomorrow because I want it, and then God doesn't give me a new car tomorrow, and we're like, hey, God, you know, why didn't you come through for me? Man, we got to be listening to his word. Oh, we got to know what God has really said to us. But for those things that God has said to us, for those things that God has promised us, for those things that we know are part of God's will, part of God's plan for us as Christians, there is no downside to getting your hopes up in God. And because of that, even in troubles, even in tribulations, even in problems, we can praise. We can be certain that God will give us the endurance to make it through the trial. Not only can we just make it through, but through the experience he develops in our life, that we can grow through the trial, having a confident expectation that we'll not be disappointed that God is working on our behalf for our blessing and for our good. And we have security to stand in legal righteousness, full access, confident hope in the future. We have problems to praise in. And as, as weird as it would be to sandwich problems on either side of the incredible truths that we see in this passage, that's exactly what Paul does. Because even in what we intrinsically feel are the worst things in life, God is accomplishing some of his best plans and purposes through them. And yet beginning here in verse 5, we also see, thirdly, that we have love to live in. I don't know why. It's not a particularly difficult verse to read. But I'd always misread this verse a little bit. But it's interesting what Paul is saying here. He says, Hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And notice he doesn't say that our, the reason our hope won't fail is because oh, the situation's gonna work out comfortably. Uh, all the details are gonna fall in line with our preconceived expectations. He points us to God. God won't fail us. And yet what we see here is that he says, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Now, it's not a hard verse, and in isn't a hard word, but for whatever reason, I'd always thought that this was something like the love of God is shed abroad from our hearts, uh, out of being in our hearts, now reaching others with the love of God. And hey, that's an awesome thing. Man, we should absolutely be showing the love of God to our community before the hunt and for Easter and, uh, and just every week, right? Because people need Jesus. But that's... Not what this verse is specifically saying. Hey, hopefully God's love is being shed abroad out from our hearts. But here he says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Uh, the idea of shed abroad is filled up to overflowing. 
It's like if you're uh, doing the dishes and uh, maybe you're scrubbing something out in the sink and you've got the water running and maybe someone uh, calls you or, or you're listening to someone and you look away for a bit and uh, maybe the, the faucet is right over that cup or that bowl or that dish or whatever it is and, and now the water pouring into it has raised it up to a point of fullness and fullness to overflowing, right? That it is spilling out of that dish in the sink there because it's under the faucet, because it's under the water. That's the picture that's being given here of God's love for us. That through the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, the love of God is made to overflow within our hearts. God wants you to know his love. He doesn't just want you to know facts about his love. He doesn't just want you to uh, be able to match it up with a verse on a theology quiz asking about attributes of God. Hopefully you get it right, but there's more to that. God wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his love as an emotional reality. Uh, God doesn't want you to uh, live your life treating God's love like a math problem that you know the right answer to and you can find it in the textbook. God wants you to know his love. I mean, the Holy Spirit is here to convict us of sin and he's here to illuminate God's word to us. He's here to seal us. He's here to do so many things for us. And one of those things is that we would have an emotional awareness and uh, an inner personal experience of the love of God for us. But we see in verse 6 that we can also know God's love as a historical fact. For when we were yet without strength, man, when we had nothing going on good in our life, in due time, man, in the, at that perfect moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, man, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Hey, there's a limited scope of people in my life that I, I could confidently say that I would put my life on the line for. Uh, I, I'd like to hope that I'm more heroic than I am, and uh, maybe in, in some terrible circumstance, uh, some uh, modicum of heroism shows through. But frankly, right, I'm looking around, and I like a lot of y'all, and some of y'all have gotten good grades in multiple of my classes, and you're rising the list of people I like, but there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a jump there between, hey, that person got, a, got an A in my class once, and you know what? I would take a bullet for that person, right? Like, I love y'all, but not like that, right? At least not right now. We'll see, right? Maybe you get there, but I'm not so sure. But there's probably some people that you would. Uh, maybe your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, or depending on your life stage, right? Your, uh, your spouse, your children, maybe your family, your brothers or sisters, maybe a, a close friend, right? Someone that, uh, even though they aren't literally a sibling, man, they are, they're your brother, they are your sister. Hey, maybe for a good person, maybe for someone that you love and that loves you and you have this close relationship with, maybe you take a bullet for them. Maybe you die for them. But here, for those who are without strength, for those who are ungodly, verse 8, for those who are sinners, and verse 10, those who are enemies, God shows us as a historical fact 
the scope of his love for us, and he does so. He puts it on full display. He, he puts a billboard up to advertise that God commendeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Hey, this is something that's a, a great verse when uh, we're out witnessing. Hey, man, we can, we can let people know that uh, when they're in their sins and they're far from God, they don't have to polish up their life to be able to have God want them or uh, to have Christ come to them. And uh, Christ died uh, for them. But it's interesting that he places this here in this discussion that's leaning into encouraging Christians at this point. He's reminding Christians of what they've received, and he's reminding Christians of God's ongoing purposes in their life, and he says that we can know, that we can look back with full assurance that God loves us, not only because of the ongoing internal work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, reminding us of God's love, but because however we're feeling in any given moment, whatever kind of day we've been having, we can look back at the cross and we can know for one billion percent certain that God loves us. Romans chapter 8 tells us, hey, uh, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who shall be against us? He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God loved us so much to give us Jesus, what's he going to hold back from us at this point? Uh, what, what would be harder to let go of than his own son, and yet he gave his own son for us? 1 John 4, verse 10, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the satisfactory payment, to do what needed to be done for our sins. Because what needed to be done was that we needed a Savior. We weren't doing great. We weren't uh, having it all together. And in that state and in that moment, Christ came for us. Because of that, we can always run to God in any situation, in any circumstance. Chengguan Lim came from China in 1955 to study at the University of Michigan. But while he was there, it, it turns out that the adjustment to, to the culture and to the studies, there, there's just some obstacles that he was facing, and he started to really struggle in his classes. And one day, he dropped out and completely disappeared. Uh, nobody knew where he went or what he was up to. He had been involved with a, a church there in Ann Arbor, and his pastor uh, even hired some private detectives in order to be able to, to find him, to try to find out what had happened to him. And for four years, they couldn't find any signs. For four years, they, they didn't know uh, where he had gone to or what had happened. And yet four years later, uh, the, the detectives were at the church. They were uh, talk, talking to the pastor and saying, hey, you know, we haven't been able to find any leads. And they heard a thump from the attic above the sanctuary. They go up into the attic and check it. You can look at the news articles about this. And they, uh, they find out that Chen Guanlin had been living there for the last four years. Uh, he had gotten a piece of rope and to jump rope, try to give himself a little bit of, of exercise, a little bit of physical activity. Uh, he had gotten the stuffing from a replaced pew, and that had been his bed. He was raiding the church kitchen at night, and nobody had noticed somehow for four straight years. Probably wasn't a Baptist church, right? We would have noticed if any food had gone missing. And yet when he was finally discovered, when he was uh, finally apprehended, for lack of a better word, his fear vanished. 
And he, he had to be taken to, to jail for trespassing, right? He'd been living in the church attic for four years. And, and there, there were some legal things that had to be done. But his fear vanished and he said, I'm a, I've been a coward. I'm glad that I was found. And when we don't understand God's love or when we understand God's love with the, hey, I studied this fact for a test part of our mind, but not that this is true in my life today part of our heart, when we come across difficulties, when we come across tribulations, when we are faced with something that we don't know what to do with, we question if God loves us and we, we run from God, we hide ourselves, fearing whatever kind of shame might be brought to the light, and yet God says, man, I, I love you. And I, I came to you, I came to save you at your worst moment. Uh, why would you run now? Uh, some local businessmen uh, heard of Cheng's situation and they posted bail for him and they uh, paid for his ongoing studies at the University of Michigan so that he could devote himself to his schoolwork. And two years later, he graduated, became a successful businessman and uh, continued living his life from there. But when we come clean with our need, when we come clean with our difficulties, when we come clean with uh, the struggles that we have, we realize that we're always met with God's love. Sometimes we don't always feel that, right? We, we, might, we might say, we might affirm that God loves us, and you don't have to answer this, obviously, but do you today really feel like God likes you? Not that he loves you as a, a function of his will. Not that he has some kind of a generic categorical love for you, like a teacher who loves all of their students, but man, he knows their name, but I don't, I don't think he knows mine. Uh, not something that uh, he does, but with a, a hint of disappointment that reflects the, the disappointment that you and I might feel about ourselves at times. Do you truly believe that God likes you? Maybe you do. Hopefully you do. You might not. I've been there. And not just like, hey, years and years and years ago either. That sometimes it's easy to look at ourselves and to look at who God is and how we feel like we're measuring up and, and frankly not measuring up. And to figure that God loves us as a theological fact, but not in our daily experience. But that's not what Scripture says. That scripture tells us that there is no disappointment in God's love. He doesn't love an idealized version of you that he wishes you would become and just tolerates the real you that you are right now. He doesn't care for you only as a concept. He doesn't care for you just as human number six billion whatever. That he loves you and that nothing can separate you from that. Uh, there's no difficulty. There's no struggle in your life that changes who God is towards you and what God's heart is towards you. It's faithful, and you can be confident in it. You can know for sure that this is who God is, that God loves you. May we have security to stand in legal righteousness, full access, future confidence. We have problems to praise in because we know that God will not let us down and that his purposes are good but we have love to live in. We know that God's heart is for us. Hey, are you standing? Are you standing in that security? It's there for you to stand in. 
There's that ongoing deposit. Man, every day for the Christian life is Bobby Bonilla Day. Every day there's ongoing blessings to receive. Are you standing in that security? Are you praising in problems? I don't know what your problems are. We could go through and rank all of our problems and evaluate all of our problems, but all of us have them. Are we praising God in them? And are you living in God's love? Is your heart settled? Is your heart assured in the depth of the truth that God loves you?